This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Let's just start with the obvious. Donald J. Trump lost the 2020 election to Joe Biden, and like a child, like a goddamn baby, he couldn't handle losing. And so rather than concede, he blew the world up. Given my experience working for Mr. Trump, I fear that if he loses the election in 2020, that there will never be a peaceful transition of power. And this is why I agreed to appear before you today. I warned you in 2019, and I'll tell you again now, Donald Trump is a clear and present danger to our democracy. He can't handle the truth. And if you watched the January 6th hearings and thought, nothing to see here, you can't handle the truth either. If for whatever reason you think gas prices and baby formula are the real issues, I'm sorry if you're hurting, but wake the fuck up. Our entire way of life, the American dream, is on the line here, folks. And either you take a stand against Trump, Trumpism, and all the big liars, or you're contributing to our downfall. And here are the facts. Most Republicans in the Senate voted against money for baby formula and voted against the oil and gas price gouging bill. Those bills only passed the House because Democrats held the majority. And don't forget that when you go to vote... These corporations are making record profits, the highest that they have been in over seven years, even as Americans are struggling. They plan to use these profits to buy back over $35 billion in stock, rather than investing in production to increase supply, transitioning to green energy, or bringing down the price at the pump. But confronting the truth of perhaps the single worst event in our history isn't a matter of politics, whether it's right or left. It's a matter of right and wrong. And what happened on January 6th of 2021 was just fucking wrong, period, end of statement. So let's talk about the hearings. Donald Trump had his days in court to challenge the results. He was within his rights to seek those judgment. In the United States, law-abiding citizens have those tools for pursuing justice. He lost in the courts, just as he did at the ballot box. And in this country, that's the end of the line. But for Donald Trump, That was only the beginning of what became a sprawling, multi-step conspiracy aimed at overturning the presidential election. Not too flashy, Chairman Benny Thompson set a tone for the first of the primetime hearings that was sincere, but not slick. His nervousness early on only added to the gravity of the event. Handing the proceedings over to Liz Cheney, the flatness of her Wyoming accent underscored the fact that she's not an actress, but a hard-bitten lawyer who takes her role as the committee's lone Republican woman seriously. Driving home values that Republicans before Trump would have applauded, rule of law, oath to the Constitution, bravery, this is what she represented without much work. It's just who she is. Can't say I agree with her politics, but I'd welcome her into my lifeboat. At 6.01 p.m. on January 6th, after he spent hours watching a violent mob besiege, attack, and invade our capital, Donald Trump tweeted, but he did not condemn the attack. Instead, he justified it. These are the things and events that happen, he said when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away 
from great patriots who've been badly and unfairly treated for so long. What Cheney made clear is that Trump didn't use any of the powers of the presidency to stop the insurrection. Quite the opposite. He didn't call anyone to help shut it down. Not the National Guard or his generals. Not even more police reinforcements. No. He just sat by and watched the Capitol attack on television, like it was some fucking reality show. And let Mike Pence try to pick up the pieces as he ran for his life. In fact, General Milley told House investigators that it was Pence who gave the order to finally send in the National Guard troops. The White House Mark Meadows instructed him to say that Trump made the call. And one thing that was made clear over and over and over again Trump knew that he had lost. He was told by his data people. He was told by his hand-picked attorney general. And most damning, his own daughter Ivanka knew that the only fraud was her father. Bill Barr, once Trump's take-no-prisoners pitbull, kicked off the taped cameo appearances with a bang. I had three discussions with the president that I can recall. One was on November 23rd, one was on December 1st, and one was on December 14th. And I've been through sort of the give and take of those discussions. And in that context, I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be a part of it. And that's one of the reasons that went into me deciding to leave when I did. I observed, uh, I think it was on December 1st, that, you know, how can we, you can't live in a world where, where the incumbent administration stays in power based on its view, unsupported by specific evidence, that the election, that there was fraud in the election. There was something Shakespearean about watching clips of Ivanka and Jared's taped interviews. After all, these had been Trump's most trusted advisors. Family in the mob sense that went against the Don. Ivanka Trump, her dark eyes trained on the camera, did not try to wiggle out of the truth. She said without saying that her father was a fucking liar when she admitted that she respected and believed Bill Barr. It was a stark and defining moment that probably marks the end of her being daddy's little girl. If Trump feels no other consequence for his actions during the last days of his failed presidency, the desertion of his beloved daughter most definitely stings. Remember, these are people that I have known and to some degree still care about. And none of this thrills me. I just find it profoundly sad. Jared showed up as the arrogant fucking asshole that he is, calling the legitimate concern of White House counsel Pat Cipollone, whining, barely hiding the contempt in his voice, so over the Trump presidency that sitting for the committee was clearly just an annoyance to him. Here again was an incredible betrayal to Trump. His fucking wonder boy, the idiot he put in charge of just about everything, has turned against him too, but without any sort of malice, just pure unadulterated boredom. The chilling montage of the sheer violence that defined January 6th left those in the gallery who had lived through it in tears. 
Again, the slight delays between testimony and video footage were not slick and whether planned or not made the hearings feel more like a PowerPoint presentation than a big Hollywood production. The committee made the right choice when they hired veteran news producer James Goldston as a consultant. I was called a lot of things on January 6, 2021 and the days thereafter. I was called Nancy Pelosi's dog, called incompetent, called a hero and a villain. I was called a traitor to my country, my oath, and my constitution. In actuality, I was none of those things. I was an American, standing face to face with other Americans, asking myself how many times, many, many times, how we had gotten here. If there was anybody who might get through to insurrection non-believers, it was Officer Caroline Edwards, the first member of the Capitol Police Force to be seriously injured that day. In her testimony, she describes how she was pushed down by the advancing mob, hit the cement with her head and passed out. Kicked aside by the rioters, she still managed to get back up to aid her fellow officers who had also been beaten, tear gassed and maced. This young woman, who in many ways is the epitome of grace under fire, showed a surprising amount of grit. Never giving in to the obvious overwhelm that she was feeling, she told her harrowing story with no tears, no drama, just a firm resolve to get the truth out. Sitting behind her as sort of a wall of support was the officer who trained her and often refers to her as his little sister, Officer Harry Dunn, who you might recall from hearings the committee undertook earlier this year, that featured the terrifying accounts of officers who were there on the scene, officers that Republicans have constantly mocked and disregarded. Don't ever tell me that you back the blue again if you sat through their testimony without relating to the pain and anguish they felt, not just because their fellow Americans beat the shit out of them on January 6th, but because they've never stopped. She did a fantastic job and um, I couldn't be proud. I was just so proud of her bravery. Uh, her, I called her a shero in a tweet that I wrote. Um, and I'm just so proud of her, I, like a big brother kind of thing, and uh, I couldn't be prouder of her. The fraternity that the Capitol Police have shown to one another and to the families of the officers who have fallen as a result of January 6th is extraordinary. They have each other's backs in a way that reminds us that their oath to serve and protect also applies to their brothers and sisters on the force. What this hearing has done is give us an honest portrayal of America on its worst day. But the fact that we're even having hearings says that the violence against our democracy won't be met with silence or indifference, that patriots, even at their own political peril, will speak up. And make no mistake, the criminal intent of Trump's actions on and before the 6th were made clear for all who are willing to see. This wasn't just a one-off or some accidental eruption of an insane MAGA posse. No, this was a well-organized and financed attempt to steal an election and overthrow the government. It was a coup. In footage obtained by the committee, we learned that on the night of January 5th, Enrique Tarrio and Stuart Rhodes met in a parking garage in Washington, D.C. There's mutual respect there. I think we're 
We're fighting the same fight, and I think that's what's important. The only accident was that English documentarian Nick Husted just happened to be there when his subjects, the Proud Boys, met up with their brothers, the Oath Keepers, in a parking garage the night before the insurrection to finalize their strategy for storming the Capitol, and then go out for tacos. The sheer banality of what they had for dinner is the sort of detail that made it all very real and all of the more horrifying. Custed, who claimed he was there under subpoena, offered new information, saying that between 250 and 300 Proud Boys skipped the speeches on the ellipse so they could mince around the peace memorial, casing the joint before Trump urged the mob to march on the Capitol. These are not and never were right-wing heroes. These men are jackbooted fascists who have somehow infiltrated the heart of the Republican Party. So look no further than Miami-Dade, where they've stolen seats from real conservatives and are now calling the shots for the county. Meanwhile, our friends at Fox News didn't even bother to tell their audience that over a thousand violent rioters breached the Capitol, some in militaristic lines that they used like battering rams to gain entry and never answered the question. Why would so many Republican senators run to Donald for pardons if they didn't believe that what they had done on the 6th was sedition or at the very least a crime? As you will see, Representative Perry contacted the White House in the weeks after January 6th to seek a presidential pardon. Multiple other Republican congressmen also sought presidential pardons for their roles in attempting to overturn the 2020 election. They knew then and they know now they were the only people trying to steal an election. And yet, Tucker fucking Carlson, the prick, has the audacity to say this, and I quote, Wherever you are. And Laura Ingram, the whole line lot of them on Fox living in La La Land, still haven't grasped the reality of this grave situation and are still spreading the big lie as if it were the truth, as if their professional lives depends on it because it does. When America finally wakes the fuck up from our national nightmare, they will be held accountable too. And now for the main event. We welcome for the first time on Mea Culpa, progressive commentator Brian Tyler Cohen, the host and creator of the popular podcast, No Lie, which he covers breaking political stories and sits down with major players in the world of politics, promising to bring you the news straight with no disinformation and no lies. His guests have included Vice President Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi, and White House Chief of Staff Ron Klein. Cohn is amongst the most watched commentators in the country and can be found on all major platforms, including YouTube, where he has a million and a half followers, Instagram, and Twitter. Brian, once an actor and a writer, left it behind to doggedly criticize Fox News, the Trump administration, and anyone on any side of the political spectrum spreading lies. Interested? So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Brian, our shows have a similar goal. Yours, of course, being called No Lie with Brian Cohen. I think we aim to protect democracy and advance the political education of our listeners. Now, one thing I've been hearing lately, and I wonder if you've heard the same, people are really burnt out on Trump and that they don't want the upcoming elections to be all about him. 
And further critics then say, you know, folks like you and I, we should be more positive about the Democrats. We should talk more about what we're about and bitch less about the failures of the party. What's your opinion on this? I think we have to walk and chew gum at the same time, right? There, And it's not just Trump. I mean, of course, Trump poses a singular threat to democracy, a unique threat to democracy, unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I think, obviously, that has to be top of mind. But Trumpism is living beyond Trump. I mean, look at the, the extremism of the Republican Party today. We have their extreme on abortion rights or women's reproductive rights. They're extreme on guns. They're extreme on voting rights. They're extreme on, on any way you cut it. This is a party that's running toward the cliff way off the far right. So I think that's something that we should absolutely focus on. At the same time, I think it's incumbent upon at least what I do, you know, as part of progressive media is to, you know, shine a spotlight on what Democrats are doing. And Democrats are moving to fix a lot of these issues. You know, Democrats have moved from every issue from price gouging at the pumps to introduce legislation to stop price gouging, uh, you know, to, to s cut costs for Americans, you know, at a time of uh, high inflation, global high inflation. At least Democrats are moving to cut cut costs as they relate to childcare and allowing the government to negotiate lower drug prices. Everything across the board, whatever they can do to make it easier for Americans to afford things, they are trying to do it. All the way to you know, like I said, voting rights, gun bills, trying to raise the age to 21, trying to make sure that uh, 18 year olds can't get their hands on AR-15, trying to make sure that we have universal background checks, trying to make sure that we have red flag laws all the way to codifying protections for women's abortion rights. I mean, whatever it is, Democrats are moving to fix a lot of the issues that we're contending with from Republicans. So yeah, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Look, you touched on so many topics, and we're going to touch on so many of the same topics during the course of this hour-long program, right? So let me then ask you this, because one of your recent shows, you discussed what might have happened if Trump had somehow pardoned himself. Where do you think that we'd be today if that happened? And do you think anyone is paying attention to Dinesh D'Souza's um, movie that recently came out about the stolen election? Um, I think, what's it called, like 2,000 years or something meals. stupid like yeah. that? Yeah. And then how effective do you think that the January 6th hearings will ultimately, you know, how, how do you think that they're going to ultimately be? Are people's minds already made up? Or do you think that maybe there's a percentage of people in this country that are willing to listen to the facts and use those facts? Um, are, I mean, are any of us expecting any real surprises from this? Give me your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that there is all we always have to hope that there's a small sliver of people who aren't just completely overcome with politicization, right? So there's always going to be this small sliver of people who are willing to look at the facts, who are these independents, who are swing voters from Obama to Trump, Trump to Biden. I mean, those are the people that we have to not only uh, target with these hearings, but also people who might be, you know, who might think that, okay, I did come out for Biden in 2020. I don't know if it's worth it to come out and vote in 2022 or 2024. But I think by showing them the unique threat that's being posed by Trump and Trumpism uh, that presented itself on January 6th, and that could very well present itself again if we have a Republican Congress or that refuses to certify any election results for a Democrat in 2024, I think maybe this will give people the kick in the ass to show them the threat that we're facing right now. Um, so that's, that's what I'm hoping with, with these January 6th hearings. Look, 
we have nothing to lose by airing these these hearings on prime time and showing just a few more people, reaching just a few more people, especially in a country where we're winning elections by tens of thousands of votes in just a few states. And that's that's, that's determining who the president is. So I think we have nothing to lose by airing these hearings and letting show that and letting uh, just a few more people um, be privy to the facts. Um, and with that said, I mean, we've seen a lot of this drip, drip, drip from the January 6th committee as it is. And there is always new information. I spoke with Glenn Kirshner a few days ago uh, on this past week's great podcast. Great guy. I mean, honestly, just a truly yeah, great guy. Yeah, and he is, he's a wealth of knowledge. But he even said himself, there is we know probably 20% of what the January 6th committee shows uh, knows. So, you know, if if even the drip, drip that we're getting from the January 6th committee over the last few months has been, you know, has kind of rocked Washington. Just imagine what the other 80 percent is, what what they have in store. So, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely looking forward to these hearings. Um, to answer your second question, do people care about Dinesh D'Souza's 2000 Mules, where the film purports to prove election fraud and yet doesn't show a modicum of evidence for election fraud. No, I don't think that people care. I don't think that that uh, made any big waves. I think that's just uh, yet another grift by someone who's, uh, whose entire career is predicated on, on grifting people. So, uh, and, and remind me of what your first question was, Michael. So let me touch before I go back to the first question, which was where do you think we'd be uh -huh. today if Donald pardoned Trump himself, had yeah. pardoned himself, right? But I want to talk about Dinesh D'Souza for a second, because I find the whole thing to be uh, I don't even know what the right word is. It's fucked up, right? I mean, you know, so he puts out this movie, 2,000 Mules. And this allegedly, according to reports, that it's become the cornerstone of the Trumpian election denier movement. Now, the problem with that is we already know how the, you know, how the end of the movie is supposed to end. It reminds me of like the movie Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, you would have liked to see Adolf Hitler get killed and you'd like to see the Jew bear walk down and, right, and beat the shit out of that Nazi with a baseball bat and so on. It's just not the way that the story ends, right? We could all fantasize over it as these, you know, Trumpian election deniers do. But what bothers me the most here is that this movie was screened at Mar-a-Lardo, all right? It's not Mar-a-Lago anymore, folks. It's Mar-a-Lardo, all right? Because the guy who's inhabiting that house is just a fucking fat ass. So he hosts the screening of, of this show at Mar-a-Lardo, and he praises it, which is just typical Donald Trump, as the great... Let me do his voice. Dinesh, by far, it's the greatest and most impactful documentary of our time. Well... Look, let me say this. Quite frankly, it's not true. And it's irritating to me that Dinesh D'Souza, and you're right, he's nothing but a Donald Trump wannabe grifter, yeah. doesn't seem to understand, because I believe he's of Indian descent, right, from Mumbai. Donald Trump looks at him with racist eyes. Other than the fact that he's promoting the big lie, Trump would never allow him at Mar-a-Lago, certainly not to host a screening. If it didn't have to do with Donald, he certainly wouldn't be breaking bread with him. That's just not who Donald Trump is, unless, of course, he was giving Donald money, right, to build, you know, some shitty project in India. 
Then he would sit down with them. But short of that, Donald Trump, as I say all the time, is a racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semite. He looks at Dinesh D'Souza with those type of eyes. And yet, this is who Dinesh D'Souza wants to destroy his reputation, his family's honor for? What? You know, I, I, think, I think that these people in that right-wing ecosystem just see an opportunity to fail up. And they see that, they're, that the Trumpier that they can be, the more that... You know, the more attention he'll give them, then they can just ride his coattails. And there is an audience for that, as we've seen. But I think that this movie kind of kind of is the perfect encapsulation of Trumpism and, and this whole and all of the big lie, because it actually proves nothing. It's an entire it's an entire um, production put toward, you know, predicated on something that isn't true, that doesn't even claim to be true. And that's actually disproven multiple times. I also interviewed Washington Post, right. uh, Philip Bump, who's, who's done a ton of uh, a coverage of, of this documentary. And he's questioned him and called him out. And even Dinesh D'Souza has acknowledged that there is no evidence uh, to back up any of the claims he's making. But that, that is the big lie. I mean, look what we've seen at the big lie, the, that they claim the election was stolen. They went in front of 60 judges, including a number of whom Trump himself appointed, Plus the three Supreme Court justices who wouldn't touch this thing. He's gone in front of, you know, this claim has gone in front of uh, secretaries of state and, uh, you know, uh, attorneys general. And no, nobody wants to touch this thing. They've never been able to claim fraud in any of the uh, uh, attempts that they've done, to, that they've uh, pushed forward for this thing. So, so, yeah, I mean, like, if you have a film that also purports to prove the big lie, that also fails to do so. I mean, that that's kind of par for the course. It's not about the evidence of the big lie because there is none it's just about furthering the narrative and feeding the flames people aren't in, this is this is a theory you know a conclusion in uh what's the 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 saying it's a uh, you know, it's it's a conclusion in search of I, I can't remember what it is, but in any case, they've already made up their minds about what the big lie is. Anything that they can throw at it to just further this idea that that it's real, you know, regardless of whether the, that evidence bears out. It's just about feeding this narrative. Brian, you know how you know that this movie is bullshit from beginning to end? When you have Fox News media and you have Newsmax denouncing it and not promoting it. In essence, they blocked coverage of it as well. To which Dinesh D'Souza decides that he's now going to go somewhat on the offensive. And who's he going to go? Look, I don't care. You know, it's against Tucker Carlson, another guy I don't give two shits for. But I love it when he turns around Dinesh D'Souza and said, I'm sorry to say Tucker Carlson and his team specifically instructed Catherine Engelbrecht of True, the, of True the Vote, not to mention the movie. Right. Referring to some guests that were booked on some primetime shows not to talk about this movie. That's how you have to know, because as you well know, and so do my listeners, 90 percent of the shit that comes out of Tucker Carlson's mouth, which is, of course, all opinion, is just factually inaccurate. Right. And if that guy won't touch this, if that guy doesn't touch this film, I think that that's my I point think that speaks volumes. Oh, yeah. Big, big time volumes. You know, so let's just then go back to the very first part of the question, because it looks like we went backwards uh, and now we'll, we'll end it that way. Your point in regard to or your position on what if Donald Trump had actually pardoned himself? And I want to preface your response by saying we don't know that he doesn't have a pocket Correct. pardon. All right. 
Um, he may be sitting with it in his brioni breasted oversized jacket pocket, and we just don't know about it. I think that, I think that the, in all likelihood, he probably did. I don't think he wouldn't. I, I don't think he would miss out on an opportunity to to protect himself, to insulate himself. I think that if anybody knows that they have, uh, you know, um, any culpability or, or, or legal exposure, uh, it's Donald Trump. So if he has an opportunity to hand himself a get out of jail free card, I think we'd be kidding ourselves if he didn't take it. With that being said, I mean, this is, you know, this is par for the course. I mean, Donald Trump's entire, entire presidency, much less his, you know, uh, his life is just predicated on this idea that he's going to get away with it. Um, I think it's less about Donald Trump. Do you know why, uh, Brian? Do you know why? Do you know why? Why? Because he has. Yeah. He has. Yeah. And, and you have to take that into consideration, you know, um, in regard to this whole issue about Trump having himself a pocket pardon and probably one for Jared and Ivanka too, right? Because he has gotten away with shit his entire life. People like me have always been around him. First it was Roy Cohn, then it was Michael Cohen, and then it's Michael Cohen talking to Brian Cohen unrelated, right? Um, you, you understand my I, point? I think, I think the issue here is less about him trying because of course he's going to try. And like you said, he's always tried and he's been successful at it too. I think it's more now a question of whether you know, the forces for good in the government, these pro-democracy forces, the attorney general, the January 6th committee are actually going to do something uh, to to make sure that he doesn't get away with it. I think, you know, everyone's looking at Merrick Garland right now and what the DOJ is going to do. I think that's the bigger issue. It's not that we're wondering whether Trump is going to hand himself a pocket pardon because I think anybody with a pulse is going to assume that he did. I think it's just a matter of whether we're going to finally fight back and recognize the importance of, you know, making sure that, that there is some accountability in government if we don't want this to happen again. I think that's the bigger issue right now. Not whether Donald Trump is going to be corrupt because he's proven to us time and time and time and time and time again. It's whether we are finally going to stand up and say, this is unacceptable and we're going to throw the entire book at you, just like we do with, you know, low collar, low, low, uh, low collar crime, blue collar crime and, and all the rest of that stuff. You mean white collar crime too? Well, right, yeah. as so, well, yes. Yeah, but 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 here's the problem. Here's the problem with that. Your response is so reminiscent of the conversation that I used to hear and talk about and was involved with when it came to the Mueller report. Everybody sat there and saying, "I can't wait for the Mueller report to come yeah. out. It is going to be a historical document, which it turned out to be." And it's going to be the thing that puts Donald Trump and his sycophantic cohorts and conspirators behind bars. And we all know damn well that Robert Mueller issued it, Bill Barr preempted it with a three-page, you know, um, outline. Obfuscation, basically, basically yeah. Let's. We will definitely call it an obfuscation because there was so much misinformation, malinformation, and disinformation in Bill Barr's three-page document. I'm afraid. I really am. I'm afraid that Democrats and independents are relying too much on the January 6th hearing. And I say that because there are things that we know. Now, you're right. Most of the stuff we don't know. What we do know is that they've interviewed now a thousand people. And I talk about this all the time on Mea Culpa. 
I've been before nine different congressional committees, and each and every time, it was at least nine hours. Let's just say I'm special. So let's even say it's only five hours. Just do the math, right? You're talking about 5,000 hours. That's more than two years of 24-7 conversation, information gathering, and we don't know the exact number of documents, but we know it's in the many, many, many tens of thousands. We know that with this 2,500 just from Mark Meadows, his text messages alone. So now I know that everybody's looking to see what's going to happen. Now, of course, I'm going to watch it. Not only am I going to watch it, I'm going to be doing on YouTube counter-programming to Donald's counter-programming to the January 6th. So everybody, stay tuned. Watch for me, whether it's on, tw you know, I'll do the announcement on Twitter or YouTube, but it's going to be fantastic. I can promise you that. But my biggest fear is that we're going to come away feeling slighted again, empty-handed, and that hurts us. As it, as it relates to getting out and getting people angry and active and calling Republican members of Congress regarding a whole slew of things that they're doing wrong. They just don't do it. Yeah, I, I, I think that that is definitely top of mind. What I'm hoping is that, you know, we have... What I'm hoping is that the Justice Department recognizes that a feckless response uh, like we've seen before will only invite this sort of, you know illegal, corrupt, dangerous behavior in the future. I'm, you know, at some point we have to recognize that the, the legal response to this is out of our hands and that, you know, we can watch the January 6th hearings and we can hopefully enough, enough eyes on this thing, enough pressure building up. Uh, Glenn Kirshner, again, just a few days ago said this kind of pressure bursts pipes. And so if, you know, there's nothing that we can lose by just by virtue of just promoting this and making sure that everybody's tuned in and recognize the recognizing the importance of it. But our response has to be twofold. And no, we are not going to, you know, wait for the Robert Mullers of the world, the Merrick Garlands of the world to like swoop in like white knights and save us. It has to also be on us to recognize that we have agency in this. We have to go out and vote. We can't, you know, stay at home uh, as as we get into November and just say like, oh, well, I didn't get $50,000 of student loan debt canceled. And so what's the point? Or they didn't pass, you know, some iteration of the Green New Deal. So what's the point? I mean, like, we can't let, we can't let like not getting everything we want stop us from from showing up on election day and making sure that there is some accountability and just making sure that there that the republicans aren't uh, able to kind of assume power and you know it's so it's it's a two-pronged approach here it's both the legal elements of it and then us as voters we have some agency here too and i think just showing these january 6 hearings on prime time i mean that that feeds into the second part of it right because that's going to energize voters that's going to show them that what's at stake uh in these next upcoming elections yeah. And look, it's really your generation and the generation slightly younger than you that I'm counting on. And I talk about this as well on the podcast, um, sometimes too much. I'm counting on your generation and the generation, you know, that's, that's just slightly younger than you, who is smarter than my generation, that's for sure. And we're certainly smarter than the generation above us, the Donald Trump generation to get out there and to do something. Because if you're all relying upon, you know, uh, me, I'm part of the baby boomers or the Altacacas, you know, like the Trump, uh, you know, era, we're going to be very saddened. 
and we're going to see democracy lost because that's where we're going. You know, one thing they don't teach us in school, whether it's grade school, junior, right, then high school, or college, and so on, or post-grad, is that democracy is not a God-given right. And the same way democracy was created, democracy can be destroyed. And it was something our forefathers thought of when, you know, they enacted and they, they, you know, they created the Constitution. But the Constitution is an evolving document. It's a document that, you know, that grows each and every day, which is what we're seeing right now in Roe v. Wade. And we're seeing in terms of the Second Amendment for, you know, gun laws. It's evolving. And it's a big problem when your generation, it's almost like I I feel as if though they lack the, the passion and they almost becoming like empathetic, you know, to this because of Trump fatigue, of Trump derangement syndrome. They've had enough. They, you know, COVID stopped so many kids from spending one to two years in their college, right? They did it at home. Now they just want to go out. They want to sit outside. They want to sit indoors. They want to see other people. They want to have a nice steak and a drink or a piece of fish. They want to go out and enjoy their lives, which is what you're supposed to do. But you're not going to enjoy it when we lose democracy. I promise you that. And all of a sudden, the middle of the night, 2 o'clock in the morning, there's an announcement on some speaker in your street saying somebody like Donald Trump is going to be, you know, marching in a parade for himself, right? And you need to be standing outside clapping like a fucking maniac, like what you see with Kim Jong-un, right? Except the difference is... You're in Wisconsin or you're in Michigan during the winter and it's 17, 20 degrees below zero. Now what? Here's what I think. I think, you know, so much of politics, as I grew up even, is just these regular issues that young people don't really give a shit about, right? I mean, like, you have Fox News crying on, a, on an endless loop about migrant caravans. I don't think any kid is waking up and saying, but what about the migrant caravans? What about gas prices? What about inflation? These kids don't give a shit about that. But I think... When you have some of these issues that have really presented themselves as of late, the issue of abortion, you think that doesn't impact young people? You think kids aren't uh, having sex with each other in college and in high school? You think that they that if they're not able wait, to get, wait 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 what they, <laughs> if, they are if they're not able to get their, when, did, when did when did this yeah start? I think it's a brand new <laughs> phenomenon just Gen Z so uh, you know if kids aren't able to get their hands on a Plan B pill you don't think that's a political issue that that. Uh, that energizes them? You don't think that's something that, that touches their lives? What about these school shootings? You think that that's like, I mean, when I, even when I was in school, you know, I graduated high school in 2007. This was never, never even a thought in my mind. Now these kids are doing drills. They're, they're figuring out how to, how to, you know, lock their classroom doors and how to, you know, all the, this is an entire ecosystem that I didn't even, that I never even, you know, as a relatively young person, like that I never even touched, that I never, never even experienced. You think that that school, that school shootings isn't something that uh, impacts these young people's lives? The fact that you can have an 18-year-old uh, get his hands on an AR-15, the fact that we have no red flag laws, no universal background checks, none of that stuff. This is all stuff that actually touches the lives of these young people. And it's not just gas prices and inflation and the tax code and migrant caravans. It's not politics as usual. This is stuff that has that has a direct and, and visceral impact on these young people's lives. And so I think that this is an election that's going to be way different than any other election uh, for the for exactly that reason. Well, let me say, let's let's talk about guns, 
right? Because you've talked a lot about support for gun safety on your program. And I'm really interested in your take on how conservatives read the Second Amendment. I mean, do they actually believe that the government is taking away one of their protected rights if we were to lawfully take AR-15s from kids under the age of 21? I mean, from kids who are 18? Or is it just the NRA talking points at work? I don't think that this has anything to do with the gun owners. I think this is this has everything to do with Republicans in the House and the Senate. And they use gun owners as a shield so that they don't have to do anything because they want to keep collecting their campaign donations from the gun lobby, which just this cycle alone has been just shy of a million dollars. Meanwhile, they've given $12,000 to Democrats. I think four or five Democrats have taken money from the gun lobby this past cycle. Uh, there's been polling done recently that shows that what over 80% of gun owners support universal background checks, and that includes 72% of NRA members. This is not an issue that is red versus blue. This is not something where we're like, you know, where it's the, re the, the rest of America versus just gun owners. Everybody is on board with this because the only person who shouldn't want universal background checks is someone who is trying to get a gun who won't pass the universal background checks. That's it. Everyone else has a collective vested interest in making sure that we can pass common sense gun safety reforms like this. So, no, I don't think this has anything to do with the gun owners. I think this, this has everything to do with these uh, Republican elected officials who know that they can stand there and just say, I I'm, here, I'm here speaking on behalf of the gun owner who would otherwise have no voice, even though those gun owners are all in agreement that we should have, or overwhelmingly in agreement that we should have universal background checks. But this way, just by virtue of them doing that and using those gun owners as a shield to hide behind, they can c continue collecting that money from the gun lobby, collect continue collecting that money from the NRA, who then funds their re-election campaigns. This is about them. This is about these elected officials who care about themselves, their own future, and their own power. And that's it. Yeah, and we're in a, we're in a very strange place. Look, I was a gun owner. I had three firearms. I had a nine millimeter, I had a 40 caliber and a 45, and I was actually licensed to carry in the city of New York, a concealed, a concealed um, license. And maybe there were a thousand of them, and then that's it. And I had to go through enormous background checks. Meanwhile, I was a lawyer, like, don't listen to this bullshit, didn't pay taxes, all that other. I lost my right to carry. I had to surrender my firearms. I lost that license, which, I feel unsafe at the moment. You know, while I'm here in New York, and I would say for the most part, 90% of the people in New York love me to death. But what about the people outside of New York, right? I've been carrying a firearm for years, for more than 15 years. And at the end of the day, I too agree that the Second Amendment is extremely important. But here's where I disagree with so many of these members of Congress and governors and senators, not for an AR-15. Right. Now, I've been, I've trained, you know, with my firearms. I've gone to gun ranges. I mean, I've done it all. I'll tell you what I've never done. I've never shot an AR-15. I have zero interest in shooting a weapon that's designed for combat. It belongs only in the hand of the military, and that's while... They are on active duty. I, I don't even believe that they should be permitted to take the firearm. And so there should never be a civilian with a weapon like an AR-15. And when I watched Matthew McConaughey the other day, and I'm a, look, I'm, 
I'm a big fan of Matthew McConaughey. I like his movies. I like him as an actor. All right, all right, all right. But what ends up happening is he gets out there, and I'm, I'm ecstatic that they gave him the platform that they did. Maybe, maybe he swayed, I don't know, 10,000 people, 100,000 people. We're not even in the ballpark of making a difference. When he started talking and showing the pictures of the green converse, yeah. I honestly, I, want, I wanted to break down and cry, right? This child's body was so mangled from the firepower of an AR-15 that the only thing that they were able to recognize on her were the shoes. I mean, if that doesn't touch your heart, I don't give a shit if you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, or a Martian. If that doesn't touch your heart and your soul, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. And this is my, this is my point. You can't go in and you can't buy a beer, but you can buy an AR-15 with no background checks, with nothing. This is stupid. I mean, one would turn around and say, this is so logical. What are the Democrats fighting with Republicans for? What are Republicans fighting with Democrats for? This should be a layup, a bipartisan layup. I should add, too, that uh, we have conservative justices of the Supreme Court. Antonin Scalia, who was at that time that he was alive and serving, probably the most conservative justice on the court, who himself said that the Second Amendment is not unlimited. I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing here, but he said it doesn't give you any right whatsoever to own any guns whatsoever to, to, you know, in any manner whatsoever. That was Antonin Scalia. So we have a long history of recognizing that the Second Amendment doesn't just entitle you to carry, you know, whatever bazooka, RPG that you want down the street just because it's a gun. We have laws in this country and they long-standing laws in this country that prohibit you from carrying them in certain places, uh, carrying certain types of weapons. This isn't new. This is just the only thing that's new here is the NRA's stance where there should be zero restrictions whatsoever. No matter how mentally ill you are, no matter how young you are, no matter how, you know, how much... Uh, Whatever it is, you know, this has been longstanding. This is a new uh, a new position by the NRA where it's just there are zero restrictions whatsoever. And, uh, you know, since the assault weapons ban expired in 2004, I think that we've seen uh, exactly what the results of that are. I mean, this is, you know, a gun lobby that's just taken, just like everything else the Republican Party has done lately, a far-right extremist position on this, and uh, gun violence has exploded. And now, you know, these shootings that would have otherwise rocked the nation for weeks and weeks, if not months, are, are happening every single day. Something like we saw in Uvalde would have paralyzed this country for months prior, just like it did in Sandy Hook. And now it's just one of what twenty something shootings that we saw in just a couple of days. No, let me let me give you let me give you some statistics here. Since January of 2022, believe it or not, there have been 212 mass shootings in the United States of America. There have been 27 of those 212 at schools. All right, this is out of control. And while, again, I applaud Matthew McConaughey, I think he's fucking fantastic. I really do. And I am so thankful that the administration gave him a platform. But this isn't about schools. Let's not forget the mass shooting directly before Uvalde was at a top supermarket in Buffalo, New York. 
not a school. So when you get people like, what the hell is the asshole's name? Um, I think it's like Governor Bill Lee of Tennessee. I think it was him who was up uh, speaking before committee. And he turns around and he says, the issue is not the Second Amendment. It's not taking away guns, right? It's not about sensible gun laws. It's about mental health and providing school security. Well, okay, let's assume, Bill, right, that you're right. Let's assume that you're right. It's mental health and then it's school security. So now you're going to invest all of this money into somehow protecting schools, right, which you would basically need a small army to patrol, right, because these guys now come in with Kevlar you know, um, body armor, armor. Yeah. they come in with these with body armor. They come in with AR-15s and so on. What are you going to give to the school security in order to combat something like this? And God forbid it's more than one person. Right. Then you got yourself a real problem. But what then happens to the balance of the 212 mass shootings that we've seen in the United States of America since 2022 minus the 27 schools? Well, what are we going to do now? We're going to arm supermarket security guys. How about the guy at the mall? Right. I mean, this just doesn't make but any Michael, sense. That's what they want. I mean, this is these are these are talking points coming down from the gun lobby whose sole goal, whose entire existence is predicated on selling more guns. And so if you can create this police state where everyone is armed, everyone has guns, everyone has ammo, every single clerk and teacher and janitor and cashier has a gun ready for a shootout, total wild, wild west style. That means more money for them. And that's all they give a shit about. That's it. And so the natural progression of what you're saying, of course, and we're, and we're talking about this like, what the fuck? Like, this is insane, but that is exactly what they want. More people buying guns is exactly what they want. Every teacher in the school being issued a weapon is exactly what they want. Every grocery store clerk, every concert uh, usher, every, uh, uh, you know, every person that works in a church or a synagogue or a, a Every waiter, every that, waiter, that is what every they want. cab this is driver. About money for gun manufacturers and the gun lobby. That's it. That's where, that's where this all comes down to. Just, to. just to kind of harken back to what you said about uh, the governor of Tennessee talking about the fact that this being uh, a mental health issue. You know, we are not the only country in the world with mental health issues. We're not the only country in the world with a number of the other excuses they've given. Godlessness. We're not the only country in the world with fatherlessness. We're not the only country in the world with video games. We're not the only country in the world with doors, uh, which was, of course, this this newest uh, this newest uh, excuse for, for why the shooter was able to enter here. We're not the only country in the world with pornography, another ridiculous excuse, but we are the only country in the world with this many guns, this, mu this much unfettered access to guns. We have 400 million guns. We have half of the world's guns. So anybody that's claiming that it's just mental health and not the proliferation of weaponry and the ease with which one can get their hands on it, they are just doing their part to exacerbate this problem by training our attention everywhere else other than where the actual issue lies. And yet I lose my license to carry, right, simply because the president had me pay a porn star, right, to pull his mushroom pecker, or in this specific case, we'll call it his little mini weapon. Could you imagine? I can't. And yet... I've, I've had one speeding ticket my entire life, 1985. One. I don't think I've even ever had a parking ticket, right? I don't, I don't do drugs, never did drugs. I, don't, I, I barely drink any alcohol, 
right? And I'm the bad guy. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. And now I see that they're possibly passing through the Supreme Court certain legislation that, you know, you could maybe even carry here in New York. You know, and California. This, is, this is really no joke. Yeah, California. So let me say this. On the same subject, it just seems crazy that after so much killing, that Republicans continue to blame everything, of course, but the guns, right? 44%, right? They blame it not on the problem, but they now say that these mass shooters and the gun violence, it's just the price of freedom, Seriously? I mean, do they not worry about their own children? I mean, it's a high price to pay, right? To own the libs, don't you think? I think this idea that we are the only country that has freedom and that the only way we can get it is with the proliferation of these weapons is so asinine, is so laughable on its face. Do you know how many other countries in the world have freedom? And do you know how many of those countries have mass shootings like we do, have guns flooding the streets like we do? None of them. I mean, you can look just at Canada. You can look at all of Western Europe, New Zealand, Australia. All of these countries have freedom. None of them have guns flooding the streets. This is not a precondition of freedom. All, of, all this is, is is an excuse by the gun lobby to be able to sell more weapons. Again, like I said before, our right to guns in this country is not unlimited. We don't. We shouldn't have carte blanche to hand out AR-15s to 18-year-olds. It's asinine. It's, it's absurd. And this idea that we need it for freedom is just so backwards and so immediately disproven by just looking anywhere else in the world. Anywhere else in the world. I mean, we, we are an international laughingstock. Although, you know, there's, I shouldn't even say laughingstock because there's, nobody's laughing at this. It is, it is sad what's happening here, you know, in this country. Um, this idea that, that, that guns are the only way that we can have freedom while every other country in the world is able to enjoy their freedom and none of them have to worry about sending their kids to school or walking into a grocery store and it being their last day that they do that. Yep, and don't forget here, we also had in the movie theaters. I mean, it's, it's really, as you said before, this is a endless list of people who then will have to be carrying firearms. And as we all know, you know, stupid conversation, leads to an argument, argument leads to pulling right. a gun. I mean, that's what's going to happen. And that's why I applaud again your, you know, your generation, the Gen Zs and so on. And, um, you know, I had David Hogg on the show and um, not too long ago. And I applaud his efforts. I know he's trying to get um, a series of marches around the country in order to really promote sensible gun legislation. But this then goes back to our very first minute of our conversation here. There's only one way we're going to turn this thing exactly. around. And that's to vote these fucking idiots out of office. Because there's no other way. If you vote these assholes out, then the gun lobby will have nobody to give money to. And that's a whole nother thing, too. Look, I can go in and talk about I've read the book while I was in prison, um, you know, called Dark Money. It's a real serious problem because... They don't particularly care about you. They don't care about children. They don't care about anything other than getting another membership card out and getting the monthly or the annual fee coming in. It's really a problem. But let me then ask you this because we have other problems in this country. How much of an ongoing threat do you see Steve Bannon as being? And I'm going to throw Steve Miller into that as well because they're really one and the same. Now, he's been indicted 
But he set a lot of bad things into motion. He's still messing with elections. He's got his hands in all kinds of democratic subversion, and he's doing all for the most part legally, right? Or as he said to the Atlantic, he's going to give us democracy shoved up our ass, referring to sending foot soldiers to school board meetings and inspiring proud boys to run for office. Yeah, I think... What's your thought? I, I think what we have to do now is recognize that this is, you know, a lot of us say like this is the most important election of our lifetimes. I think we have to recognize that every election is going to important to, is going to be important and that it's not a one and done thing and that this is something that we have to pay attention to that has to be a part of our lives because like you just mentioned, democracy isn't a given. We don't have we're not entitled to it and if we let our guard down, we can and will lose it. And I think we saw that, you know, play out in the 2020 election. We were just a few people away. You know, if we didn't have someone like Brad Raffensperger who would find 11,780 votes, think about how, think about what Georgia would look like right now. Think about, you know, just a few more states. We had a bunch of these state legislatures that were perfectly willing to overturn the election results, like the ones in uh, in Arizona, for example, went fell over themselves to try to, you know, doing audits until like this very day to try to overturn the election results. Um, I think we have to recognize that these elections and paying attention here and pushing back on this stuff is going to be a part of our of our lives and that we can't just say like, okay, we're going to pay attention in October, September, October of, of an election year and that's it. And then we otherwise, we tune this stuff out and hope that it'll all go well and that like, you know, everything's been fine. We have our red states, we have our blue states, nothing really changes. I think that the Steve Bannons of the world are showing that we have to actually take, uh, you know, take an active uh, approach of, in all of this stuff and, and not just hope that everything's going to be fine. We have people, we have, we have malevolent actors who are actively working to undermine our free and fair elections, to undermine democracy itself. And so I think that, you know, this should be a wake up call to people out there that, that politics isn't just like something that you, that you maybe do or don't do, or your parents do. And that's it. This is something that we all have to like take an, take an active role in, uh, and, and, it's everything from the presidency all the way down to these school boards because, you know, schools have been ground zero in, uh, in a lot of these fights lately, too. Look, so, Brian, I use mea culpa as more than just a podcast to express my opinion and to enlighten my listeners, whether it's with a funny story or with a political situation that's going on for the moment. I'm trying to use mea culpa as a movement. And why? Because... The same with your podcast, right? The same with, with, with the, the things that you're doing. I'm trying to energize people so that they fully understand the depth, the depth of the, of the issue that we have plaguing us right now post-Trump administration. See, people thought that uh, Donald's out of office. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. And now we can finally try to get back to normal. We're far from normal. In fact, since he's left office, he's hasn't lost nearly as many supporters as I thought that he would. Now, he's lost supporters, but not, not the number that I thought. I thought he would just, like all presidents, disappear into oblivion. Get the fuck out of here. He makes more news a day than Joe Biden. And he knows what he's doing because he is a master manipulator when it comes to the media. I mean, the guy doesn't even have to be on Twitter. And when he does something, it's still... More, it's, it's, it's more disseminated on media, on social media, on Newsmax, on OAN, on, on social media, on what have you, 
than anything that's coming out of the DNC or the Biden administration. And that's got to be the wake-up call. So really, the point I'm trying to ask you is what do we do? I know what David Hogg is now doing by trying to create the, the march. Thank God. Good for him. What do we do in order to energize Gen Z, Gen X, and so on, so that we can actually work positively to take back our country, to ensure democracy continues for your children and grandchildren and, God willing, one day great-grandchildren. What do we yeah, do? I mean, look, my, my approach to this has always been to meet people where they are. And so if that means, you know, doing my, my thing that, I, that I've been doing for a few years on YouTube. And by the way, when I started my YouTube videos, there was a massive, like, absence of progressive media. It was like we had, you know, a, a few different outlets, but it, it paled in comparison to what the right was doing. I would log into into YouTube and the algorithm fed me a bunch of right-wing videos that I couldn't escape from. And so that's why I started doing what I'm doing. And, you know, my channel has done well in the last few years with over a million subscribers. I think that's a testament to the fact that People are hungry for this kind of content, but it just wasn't there. And so since then, of course, we've gotten a number of other outlets that have come onto the platform. And I think that's, I think that's great. You know, we have everyone from your podcast to the Midas Touch guys to, you know, you know, across the board, we've seen uh, kind of an explosion of- Lincoln Project, Democracy Now!, George Conway. And and I think that's what we need to do. And- also, you know, I started putting my stuff on Snapchat. I started putting my stuff on TikTok. There are plenty of other TikTokers in the progressive space, plenty of other Snapchatters in the progressive space. I think that we don't have to, we don't have to appeal to everybody because... <laughs> you, you put your stuff on Snapchat? Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and get... So I, it's funny. I, I don't even know how to do that. But I opened up a Snapchat in order to do the same thing that you yeah. did or, would, or have done. All I got is a bunch of naked pictures from girls all around the country <laughs> sending me crazy shit. And I just turned around. And I was like, I can't. I can't deal yeah. with this. Right. This is, you know, I'm too I'm too old for this nonsense. But I actually want to just bring up a different point for a second. Right. Because your generation. There's so many things that you've taken for granted. Let's just call it gun safety. Right. I mean, this is all relatively new, you know. And then, of course, abortion rights. This is all going to affect your age group and then the younger ones. If this isn't enough to energize the base, to energize Gen Zs and Gen X, uh, and you know, if it's not enough to get it, I don't really know what is. And you're 100% right. You said it at the beginning. This has nothing to do with oil prices. Yeah, it means you're not going to get something extra. It doesn't have to do with, you know, uh, certainly the economy. The economy's doing okay, right? I mean, we're, we're chugging along. We have our issues, but we're still chugging along. It's not about oil prices and so on. This is seriously, this is new breaking ground for your, um, you know, for your generation. And if this isn't going to be enough to energize, then I don't know what is. And I'm desperately trying to figure out how to ram this into the heads of the younger generation so that we could bring them on, right? And have them out there getting angry, you know, making, doing these protests, just showing, just showing the country that this is not acceptable. I think um, something that, that, I've tried to do in what in, in my own like uh, in my own um, you know videos and whatnot 
is bringing up these issues that I think the Republicans are desperate to train our attention away from. And so, you know, we, we live in a news cycle where it's like 48 hours and then everybody forgets. But I think if, if you continuously put forward this idea that we can have safer schools for you and your classmates, if we didn't have the Republicans blocking common sense gun safety reforms, universal background checks, red flag laws, uh, not allowing an 18-year-old to buy an AR-15, if we had Democrats in power uh, where they can actually... Uh, eliminate the filibuster and pass some of this legislation that's just been languishing in the Senate, we could make your lives safer. And I think they're just relying on this being a 48 hour news cycle. Just hang on. Eventually they'll forget, you know, they'll, they'll forget. Eventually they'll move on to the next thing, but just peppering this thing over and over and over. And yes, we have an election coming up, but there, of course, the Republicans are hoping that, that nobody's talking about this in five minutes when the next you know, bullshit scandal pops up. And of course, Fox is already on its migrant caravan kick because, you know, it's it's primary season and we'll be hearing plenty more about migrant caravans in the coming uh, weeks and months. But to focus on these things and just repeat them over and over and over, I think the Republican Party thinks that it has a monopoly on repetition and pushing their messaging over and over. I mean, how many times did we hear build the wall, right? How many times did we hear make America great again? This stuff works. But I think we can do it with virtuous messages, not only virtuous messages, but messages that are actually popular. Build the wall never had support among the majority of Americans, but common sense gun safety reforms has the support of what, 60, 70, 80, 90% of Americans? Uh, women's reproductive rights has the support of 70, 80, 90% of Americans? And so just keep hammering this message home over and over and over again. They don't have a monopoly on repetition. We can do the same thing. Okay, sure. And here's the problem, Brian. We don't. And that's the problem, and, uh, right? But, but so, we, we can be the, like let me, the, let me jump. We can be like the change we want to see, right? Like we are we are like new, we are non-traditional media. This is like what the media is now. This more people get their get their news from you know the YouTubes, the podcasts of the world, than are sitting there and watching CNN. So if it means that we have to repeat this shit over and over and over and over and over again on daily basis, sometimes in my videos I apologize because I said the same thing five straight videos in a row. And every comment that I get on those videos is don't apologize, keep doing it, keep hammering it home. Because if it means, you know, what's the, the retail thing where you have, to, uh, you have to see a brand name five times before you actually go buy it, we can do the same exact thing. Okay, but we don't, all right? And the Democrats don't have good sound bites and we don't have good rally cries. And this is something I bring up and maybe unlike your listeners, mine, mine sometimes get angry at me when I question where the fuck is the DNC with some organized and efficient messaging? I don't, I don't know where the hell they are. I mean, a Democrat's doomed to keep making the same sort of nice guy mistakes because most of us don't want to play rough. Look, I've said this to so many people. I don't mind playing rough. I really don't. I don't mind playing rough, especially if it's for the right cause. And this is the right cause. This is our democracy. All right. So where, what, what do we do with the DNC? What, what do we do? Because so far, they're not doing anything. I think that this idea of fighting is so important. It is the only thing. This idea that we are going to wait for Republicans. I mean, like, you know, this is what Biden said during during the campaign, which I thought was ridiculous then. And I think it's borne out as ridiculous now. This idea that Republicans are going to have some revelation. All the Republicans have done since that time, since the 2020 election, was move farther to the right. I think the Democrats need to recognize that this is a fight that we need to lean into and have. 
I think the DNC needs to be doing everything that it can, although the DNC has been putting a lot of money toward voter registration, with it, which I think is super important. But we can't be on the defense on all of these issues and let the Republicans control the narrative because them controlling the narrative looks like, you know, mental health or securing the schools and like door control. That's no, which nobody, nobody thinks is a legitimate issue, but it's taking oxygen away from the actual issues, which are getting the guns the hell out of here, which are making sure that women have autonomy over their own bodies. I mean, our messages are the popular ones. They, they have the support of three quarters of Americans. So we need to be the ones pushing these messages home and driving them forward and not just like finding ourselves on our heels all the time because Republicans had another migrant caravan because the Republicans uh, are trying to claim that door control or video games or pornography are the issue in these mass shootings or that, uh, you know, for whatever issue it is. But I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is a major issue. I think, uh, uh, not only that, we need to run young young people who have that fight in them. Yes. Like we have, Amen. we have like Amen. the AOCs. The reason the re- the right hates AOC is because she's an effective communicator. You know, we have people like Chris Murphy, like Brian Schatz in the Senate. We have people like like AOC in the House. Uh, you know, who who are able to effectively, who like Katie Porter, who are able to effectively message. And the Republicans don't know what to do with those people. But then of course we have the. You know, the Bob Menendezes, the Henry Cuellars, and like, who who don't do anything for this party. They're not affected. You know, we only have so many seats in the House and the Senate. And all of those seats are, are a finite resource in terms of like somebody who could have a megaphone, who has all of the advantages given, given to them as someone, as a member of Congress. Uh, and if we waste those opportunities on people who don't know how to message, who are just another... Uh, like another boring legislator or or just like some run-of-the-mill like or, you know moderate or something like that just trying to like get survive until the next election cycle as opposed to somebody who like has passion and stands for something then that's a missed opportunity and i think you know having people like like katie porter is hopefully a message to all of the powers that be that decide who runs in all of these races of course you have, gr- Brian, you have grassroots Brian, candidates but-, but we had that we had that in the Democratic Party when Barack Obama stepped up. Yeah. Young, energetic, quick-witted, brilliant, right? And then what happened? We also had the House, we had the Senate, and then we fucked up. And then, so let me ask you this, since we're talking about, you know, uh, people that are really damaging this party, right? How much damage do you think to Biden's agenda? Do you think people like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are causing? Because I know, look, I read the reports and, you know, there's all these allegations. Manchin is corrupt as hell and that, you know, nobody's really sure what the fuck is going on with cinema. Right. But the rumor is that she ultimately wants to run for president, to which, of course, I would say good luck. Right. Yeah. How much can we get done if they don't come around? I mean, there's so much infighting between. You know, I also wanted to say something to you. I'm so angry that the DNC, that Jamie Harrison has done absolutely nothing in order to create a movement, inspire people to get out, to vote, to bring their friends to the, we'll call it the, the right side of history. One of the things I'm working on is, I'm sure you're aware the Republicans have something called CPAC, right? The Conservative Political Action Committee. Um, I want to create DPAC. The democracy political action. And 
yesterday, by coincidence, I actually sat down with an individual who is going to be the first major donor for that, and we'll probably do it either in D.C., we'll do it in New York, we'll do it in California. We're going to start to try to do them all over, whereby I will ask people to come in and to speak the same way they run CPAC. And let's get people signed up. Let's get people energized. You may have saw my YouTube video the other day where I turn around and I put out the phone numbers to, you know, to the... Um, uh, to some of these members of Congress is to the main switchboard. And I want them to make phone calls. Call, call, you know, McConnie. Call, you know, um, just McConnell. Call whoever it is that you need to call in order to finally get it through their head that we're not sitting back anymore. We're not going to do nothing. And if, in fact, that they don't start to worry more about America than their next election or their, you know, their... Um, money in their bank accounts, their political, you know, action committee money, they're going to get voted out. And then the funny thing is then they'll have nothing to do because most of them have no, they have no capability. Right. Besides raising money for themselves to, to win the next election. Right. Well, look, you know, I, and I hope you'll be able to join us too when I ultimately create this DPAC thing. And I will live stream it. You know, we're going to get all the sponsors. We're going to really create something. And that's, look, that's my hope. I, I, so look, I, I think I think I think yeah, it's important ahead. to do to do any any of this any of this democratic. I think for so long we've just we've just allowed those on the right to like to like co-opt all these spaces and to 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 monopolize all of these spaces. Whether it's social media, I mean, you mentioned Steve Bannon before. The reason that he's been successful is like he knew that all of these spaces online were an effective way to reach people and to 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 spread his message. I think that it's so important to counteract that with progressive messaging, with democratic messaging, uh, you know, left of center messaging. I think anything we can do to kind of like take, you know, deprive them of the oxygen that they need. It's not, CPAC isn't just about CPAC. It's about the fact that when they do an event, the entire world watches. And so not only do we not have like counter programming or like a, a democratic equivalent, it's, it's that, it's that we're just paying attention to it. We're just focusing on it. And that, uh, that I think is, you know, it shows that like, I think that there's so much capital in that, 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 that has so much political capital. And so I think just like, not just that we don't have an equivalent, but like we need we need to just make an effort to make sure that people are not not only paying attention to us, but not talking about them. And I think that that's something they've relied on for so long and it's been massively effective for them. Yeah. And don't just come to them uh, around the time that it's election, because then they feel used and nobody wants to be used. But, you know, Brian, as we're as we're finally, you know, we're coming down to the hour um, and I told you it goes by really quickly. I just have one last question for you here. How close do you think that we are to losing democracy? And I really do mean that as a question, because we barely escaped it after Trump lost. But the forces of fascism and unchecked capitalism seem to be creeping into every single aspect of American life. And what happens when that, when, you know, that creeps in? It causes chaos. I mean, buying guns, reproductive rights. In your opinion, really, what is their end game? Because let's look at history for a quick second. It didn't go so well for the Nazis and Russia, right, has cooked their own goose. When I'm curious, tell me, what's Brian Tyler Cohen, no relation, what is Brian Cohen's vision for America? Look, I think we, you know, to answer your first question, and I have to, I have to juggle with this a lot because I know that if I sound too, like, hysterical, it kind of undermines the whole message. But 
we are two elections away from an authoritarian party taking control. I mean, this is a party, the majority of whom refused to, the vast, vast majority of whom refused to punish Trump for staging a literal coup attempt, an insurrection in the seat of government. So, you know, if we have, if, if in 2022, we allow Republicans to take either chamber of Congress and give them the opening where they can refuse to certify election results in 2024, if Democrats uh, dare win that election, then I think what you're going to see is them having fixed a lot of the issues that prevented them from being successful in the 2020 coup attempt. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, I have to, I have to like figure out how to take a measured approach to this where I'm not just saying like, we are a few years away from possibly losing everything. I mean, you think that like these opinions on, on abortion and, you know, are, are, are devastating. We have, we have everything from the Clean Air Act to voting rights to abortion to guns. I mean, everything, the whole gamut being, being run and decided by a minority of like, of, of Supreme Court justices and legislators who represent like the will of 30% of Americans. We are, we are so beyond dangerously close to that. Uh, and that's why I try to do what I do every day. You know, like, honestly, that's the hard part for me is I, I when I first started, I was able to really easily compartmentalize. And when I, and when I would work, you know, there were a lot of threats that Trump posed. But um, when I was able to do what I did in my videos after work, I was able to kind of like, you know, shut it out of my mind for a little bit. It's been harder and harder and harder to do that as these threats have have kind of presented themselves in bigger and bigger and bigger ways. You know, like ending Roe was a big one where you just like, it just kind of weighs on you and just kind of, you know, even even after you're supposed to be like done with work, I mean, this is my job, right? So like even after I'm done with work, I, I'm not able to shut some of this stuff out anymore. And it's gotten way more difficult. I think that, you know, the, the the challenges that are presenting themselves right now are uh, are way more serious and way more um, threatening than anything that we faced before. And so, yeah, I think that that's why I've done everything I can. I mean, I have I have a, a fund that I started called the Don't Be a Mitch Fund, where I'm raising money for voter registration groups in a number of states. I think about 11 swing states. We raised $950,000. And if anybody listening wants to donate to that, it's don'tbeamitch.com. Everything goes through Act Blue, all legit vetted voter registration groups. You know, I, I've I've spent all of my time just trying to make sure that, you know, whatever I think is the most effective messaging for my little corner of the Internet, my few people who I'm able to reach, if I'm able to, you know, change a few minds in these states where the margin of victory was 12,000 votes, 30,000 votes, then then I'm just going to keep hammering home. I, you know, you do what you do. Um, you know, you reach different people, but it's just as important younger people than me that, that are talking directly to Gen Zs, maybe completely on TikTok. Every, every part of this ecosystem is important. I think the consistency is important. I think, you know, not trying to reach everybody, but trying to like focus on the people whose minds you can change or whose turnout you could bolster, I think is important. Um, you know, that's, that's why I do what I do. I'm sure that's why you do what you do. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, 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 it keeps me up at night. I think the, the hard part is, is figuring out the most effective way to let people know that, you know, without st- sounding too hysterical, but being well aware, well aware that, like I said, we're two, three years away, depending on what happens in these elections, from kind of moving away from democracy and just kind of having half the country embrace full tilt authoritarianism. 
Yeah. Well, Brian, let me thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for joining me today on Mea Culpa. Um, we'll be speaking again. There's a lot of synergy uh, between the things that we're doing. I, un- unlike you, I don't want to reach a small group. I want to reach the whole world, not even just this country. I want to reach the whole world because, I, and I say this often, if you have a strong America, you have a strong world. If you have a weak America, you have a weak world. And when you start seeing people like Kim Jong-un now capable with nuclear warheads on intercontinental ballistic missiles, this is a problem, right? This is, we have only one home called planet Earth, and we really do need to protect it. And we need to protect those of us that walk at this, thank God, this given moment, uh, walking the planet. So again, I'll be in touch. I thank you for joining me on Mea Culpa. Keep the course, my brother. Keep Thanks, the course. Thanks, Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And now for today's mea culpa. To borrow a Liz Cheney quote from the hearing, there will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. I should know. I do this show and stay constantly involved in the movement to eradicate Trumpism and restore America to its former greatness every single day. I own my own prior actions, and to someone who has been on both sides of this fight... I now know the truth, and it's my mission to impart it on you. And in my humble opinion, the January 6th hearing will prove to be some of the most important events in American history, because they are showing us who we are as Americans and are begging us to do better. Do I think that the hearings will change MAGA's brainwashed minds? Fuck no, but I hope that it lights a fire under the rest of our asses to save our precious democracy. We need to show up and vote, no matter how hard they make it, and in numbers too big for them to deny. But you know that, what I'd like to share are a few takeaways from the first hearing. First, the rage, the hate, and the racism that is required to keep up with these radical right-wing lunatics must be exhausting. I mean, it's exhausting to watch, and so fucking stupid, both before and after the actual day of the insurrection. Madness clearly ruled the White House. We now know that in the weeks before January 6th, Trump had to sneak around to meet with degenerate enablers like Mike Flynn, Sidney Powell, Rudy fucking Colludi, Giuliani, and other sycophants at the White House. And after one particular clandestine meeting, White House lawyers and other staff discovered the group was there and rushed in to intervene. Like they were children. According to Cheney, After the meeting was when Trump tweeted to his supporters to show up on the 6th. Be there. We'll be wild. The authors of this coup were embarrassingly inept. I'll admit, I did get some satisfaction knowing that Kevin McCarthy was kicking himself in the nuts for pulling his stooges off that panel of esteemed lawmakers. I mean, there was no one there to interrupt the proceedings with bullshit MAGA mumbo jumbo. And truthfully, it was a relief. What I found heartbreaking was Ivanka, who in her testimony said that she accepted Bill Barr had found no evidence of fraud that could overturn the election, despite her father repeatedly saying that there was. And true to form, Trump said in a Friday morning post on his ironically named platform Truth Social, and I quote, Ivanka Trump was not involved in looking at or studying election results. She had long since checked out and was, in my opinion, only trying to be respectful to Bill Barr and his position as attorney general. He sucked. Throwing his daughter under the bus is just the sort of low Trump is willing to stoop to, to save his own fucking skin. 
Trump also live posted during the hearings, so the unselect committee of political hacks refuses to play any of the many positive witnesses and statements, refuses to talk to the election fraud and irregularities that took place on a massive scale. Our country is in such trouble. Once a bullshit artist, always a bullshit artist. Trump begged his cronies in Congress to produce some counter-programming to once again obscure the truth. But after last night's proceedings, I imagine some of them are not so willing to implicate themselves further with more lies, big and small, especially now that the committee has reportedly concluded that it has enough evidence to make a criminal referral to the Justice Department, recommending charges against the former president. And it ain't over yet, so stay tuned, and thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth.